Hi everyone, I'm Tanvid Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that explores some of the challenges and opportunities leaders face in today's increasingly complex, fast-paced, and interconnected global market. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tanvid Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that provides both virtual and in-person leadership keynotes, corporate trainings, and consulting services that will help you improve the way you lead. To learn more about our services and some of the companies and organizations we've had the pleasure to work with, visit our company's website at tavinasir.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out my award-winning, internationally acclaimed leadership blog as well. And now, let's get to my guest for this episode, Neil Sahota. AI, like all technology, is a tool. It's all about how we choose to wield it. Right? It's like a hammer. We can use it to create or we can use it to destroy. The problem is that we're just wired to keep thinking about the bad things that we're not thinking often enough about the upside that we can actually get from the technology. One of the things I enjoy about hosting this show is having conversations with people who have some interesting and powerful insights that can help us improve the way we lead. That's why I'm looking forward to speaking to my guest for this show, Neil Sahota. Neil is an IBM master inventor, the United Nations artificial intelligence subject matter expert, as well as the chief innovation officer at the Irvine School of Law at the University of California. Neil is also the author of the book, Own the AI Revolution, Unlock Your Artificial Intelligence Strategy to Disrupt Your Competition. Now, I don't know much about AI, which is why I'm glad I get the chance to speak to a renowned expert like Neil to not only dispel misguided notions we might have about AI, but more importantly, what should we be preparing for in terms of the role AI will play in how we lead going forward? Hi, Neil. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Hey, thanks for having me on, Tanvir. Excited to be here. Now, Neil, the subject matter of your book is rather different from what I normally discuss here on my podcast, but I think there's little doubt that artificial intelligence or AI will be playing a key role in various organizations and industries. The real question, and for some concern, is what exactly will that role be? Of course, to help ascertain that, we first have to have a clear understanding of what exactly is AI. I mean, we all understand conceptually what AI means, but there's also a lot of debate and fear over its capability and potential. And that's one thing I appreciate about your book, Neil, is how early on you address this curious conundrum where we have this vague idea of what AI is, but if you ask people to define it, you're likely to get several definitions. So to use the title from one of your chapters, Neil, just what is artificial intelligence? <laughs> well, Tanvir, it's very basically put uh, a machine or computer that thinks like people do, that it takes its, its database or its knowledge, it takes its experience, it takes what we call the ground truth rules on how to make decisions, and actually tries to unlock information, unlock things that we haven't seen and help make recommendations or decisions. Essentially put, it's a machine thinking like a person, but that also means that it can actually answer questions we don't know the answer to. You know, what I find interesting about AI is that while there are staunch supporters and advocates like yourself for driving AI development, you also have some high profile detractors like the late Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk, who have both issued warnings that evoke those doomsday scenarios you see in the Terminator and other sci-fi offerings. 
And naturally, this does lead to some wariness on the part of society at large. And yet at the same time, there are many technological advantages, which, as you mentioned in your book, in the past were considered AI, but are now no longer because of their commonplace usage. For example, you shared in your book how OCR technology and even our smart devices like Alexa and Google Home, where the digital assistants sound like real people and not the mechanic guy's robotic voice we'd hear on board the Enterprise and Star Trek. Not to mention the various chatbots we encounter when we visit various company sites with this virtual assistant that pops up asking us if we'd like some help. In each of these scenarios, although in the past the idea of them would be considered AI, nowadays we just think of them as being commonplace technology. So what do you think is behind this shift in thinking and outlook? Is it due to the fact that once we see it in practice and we can appreciate the benefits we derive from it, we no longer mind it? Or is it more a question of the kinds of tasks we're talking about that makes it easier for us to accept certain variants of AI over others? For example, in these examples, the technology is simplifying our work streams, but it's not removing critical thinking or decision-making from our control. Well, it's an interesting question, Tanvir. It's really a combination of both. Um, For better or worse, most people don't like change. And so every time we like introduce uh, a new piece of technology or even a new process, uh, people start fearing the worst, right? And I'm not saying those fears are not justified, but our first reaction is, okay, how does this impact me? What is this gonna mean? And much like when we do a risk assessment, we think of the bad things rather than also the good things, right? There's positive risk and there's negative risk. And so we're kind of hardwired this way. I even use in my book the example of the printing press, that when it first came out, people thought it would actually destroy human knowledge. Okay, I mean, we, we would all probably chuckle at that now, right? Like this, this actually became the, the fuel, the driver to make knowledge accessible for everybody. But at the time, that's what people actually thought. And so I think that fear factor, the change factor is one of the reasons why we, we kind of like, are, we're hesitant, we have these concerns, we worry about the worst. The other, I think, is tied to that as machines are able to do things, it somehow diminishes our place in the universe as human beings. That there are things that we thought that we can do very well or things that like a machine can never do. And suddenly AI has brought all these new capabilities to bear where we see things like the ability to read the emotional state of a person. The machine actually does it better than another human being actually does it. Right? They're much better at reading the body language and the tone of the voice and word choice. And you're not distracted thinking about what the kid's up to or what are we going to do for dinner or anything like that. They have 100% laser focus on the person. So they're actually able to figure out if this person is happy, sad, if something's bothering them, if they're frustrated. Right? And as a result, I think people feel like I'm less special now. And I think it's these two combinations that drive a lot of the fear, the concern, the, the Terminator scenario about AI. And, and don't get me wrong, there are lots of things people do much better than AI, but it's not a, it's not a death knell. AI, like all technology, is a tool. It's all about how we choose to wield it, right? It's like a hammer. We can use it to create or we can use it to destroy The problem is that we're just wired to keep thinking about the bad things that we're not thinking often enough about the upside that we can actually get from the technology. 
No, I love that. That's a great way for people to contextualize it with your example of a hammer. And you're absolutely right. I mean, in a lot of circumstances, when we think of any type of technological advancement, there was always that concern of a fear of replacement, but also a fear of that change. Like, well, this is going to disrupt my worldview, my the way I operate in this space. But then we often find that not only do we start to appreciate the change, but we very quickly adopt it as our new normal. And suddenly it becomes something that we couldn't imagine having to do without. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, the, the getting used to it, that's why I, I, not to be ageist, but the younger generations have a bit of an advantage because they're not familiar with the old ways that they're a little more open and receptive to these types of changes, you know, to, do a little bit of a tangential, if you'll indulge me for a moment here, Tanvir. I liken it to landlines versus mobile phones. One of the reasons why China and Africa are so much further advanced with mobile technology and like mobile payment is they never had the landline infrastructure, right? They weren't like North America and the United States. And so there was this thing about building something new and people are used to, you know, the way phones work because they jumped straight into mobile technology, they were actually able to think about how to use this technology different. Their penetration with smartphones was much faster. And as a result, they were more comfortable with this idea about buying things through your phone, paying through things that, I mean, today you, you go to places like they don't take cash or credit card, right? You have to pay with like Alipay or WeChat Pay or, you know, and I think that's an interesting advantage that they actually have as a result that they kind of don't have those, those blinders or anchors, that they're actually able to think more about the upside, the positive uses of the technology. And I think we're going to see the same thing when it comes to AI, that the, the countries, I've already seen some of it, like, again, China and South America, they're really committed big to like, hey, you know, we can really help more people in health, you know, with healthcare, with education, by tapping into the AI tool set. Whereas, you know, Europe and again, North America, we're thinking like, oh, okay, there's just concerns here that need to be addressed for sure. We're tend to be a little more skittish as a result. And so we sometimes look at these guys like, how did they get so far ahead? Now, Neil, before we discuss AI in the context of leadership and the impact it can have on our workplaces, I do want to address another common concern or issue surrounding AI. And that is in terms of how we program it to learn. In your book, you do a great job delineating the difference between how a human learns and how a computer learns, but I want to talk about this in the context of a term that got a lot of traction over the past few years, big data. For quite some time, there was a lot of buzz around this term of how organizations could use big data to glean deeper insights into their clients and market to not only improve their offerings, but maybe even uncover untapped opportunities. Thankfully, there's been a refinement in thinking about this where many are beginning to recognize that there's a big difference between having access to big data and having access to good data. And in the context of AI, there is an example I'm glad you bring up in your book because I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And it's the Microsoft experiment where they created a chat box called Tay that was designed to interact with people on Twitter. Now, Microsoft encouraged people to engage with this chat box as the more people engaged with it, the smarter it would become. Now, whether most of our listeners remember this experiment or not, I'm pretty sure they could figure out what happened. Essentially, 
in less than 24 hours, Microsoft had to pull the plug on the experiment because their friendly chat box was now tweeting racist, misogynistic, hate-filled messages. And this isn't the only example. We've also seen examples of facial recognition programs that fail to recognize dark-skinned people and so forth. So if we are to take that next step into greater AI adoption, how do we make sure we're teaching it correctly? And perhaps taking a few steps back further, Neil, how do you teach a machine so that it's doing more than simply parroting back data or information, but is able to process and extrapolate new findings or insights from that data that are useful and instructive, as you mentioned when you were describing what exactly is AI? Great question. So we should probably start by just quickly talking about how AI learns. And it does learn through lots and lots of data, and we need good data for that. However, the way the AI gets shaped is around what we call ground truth. And these are rules on how to make decisions. So we have a couple of potential failure points here we have to be careful of. Do we have enough data? And is the data good? Is it robust? And is our ground truth potentially flawed? Because if we, we miss something or we put some implicit bias in there, that's exactly what's gonna wind up happening. So in my work with the United Nations, they're very big about actually having AI robot judges. They're really pursuing this with a passion because they believe it will improve access to justice. But we have plenty of data in the US court system to actually do this. The problem is, is that data biased. So you think about it, all these cases, if you have two people that are about the same age, similar occupation, similar crime, but they get radically different sentencings, right? There was unfortunately an example of this with two student athletes, both were football players, both were about 20 years old, both were tried and convicted of statutory, or not statutory, but of rape essentially of a, a drunk woman. One guy got six months, the other guy got 10 years. And our court data is riddled with these kinds of examples the machine's gonna start wondering, okay, similar crimes, similar things, but different sentences, why were they different? And so it's gonna start looking, what's the difference between the defendants? And one of the things it's gonna notice with unfortunate regularity is difference in ethnicity. And it might start learning that some ethnicities seem to get lighter sentences and some ethnicities get harsher sentences. And so that becomes a huge problem. Likewise, totally other kind of random example here. You talk about visual recognition, right? We have to be able to show the different variations and things like that. And so if we were to show um, pictures of people, right? Let's say all ethnicities, different face shapes and eye colors, that's definitely helpful, but we never show the AI a picture of a human being wearing glasses, right? It's not gonna just intuitively know it's still a human being because they're wearing glasses its first reaction is, I've never seen this before. What is this? It must be something different. And so teaching the machine, it's not like it's trying to be racist or trying to be sexist or any types of things. It's on us as people to actually shape these things that we have to think about all the variable, all the scenarios and give the right exposure to the AI. And we think that just by giving it lots and lots of data will solve that problem. 
The problem is it's not we don't need big data. We actually need what we call medium data. Right now, like if you want to teach an AI to be fluent in a foreign language, it has to hear about 100 million words or phrases. Obviously, there's a lot of repetition. But a human child learns a language with only 15 million words, which means we don't actually know the right words and phrases to trigger the learning, right? We just have the ability to dump all this information that it works. It's the same thing with all these things. You know, we kind of picked on Amazon a bit. We'll pick on, actually not on Amazon, but on Microsoft, but we'll pick on Amazon for a bit where they created a uh, AI recruitment tool that would, you know, like read resumes and make recommendations based off that. But it turned out that it was sexist, right? And it wasn't like the, the machine just learned to be sexist. It was just the data they used was very skewed towards men and men and women talk differently. And so it learned that a lot of the, the, you know, the power words on resumes were words that men used. It never learned enough of the, what the women used that it wound up skewing that way. And so the big thing for us to try and tackle these problems is to make sure that we have diverse and inclusive teams involved in teaching the AI systems. We have to bring those different perspectives. We have to be vigilant about implicit bias, right? We can develop AI systems and people are actually working on this to try and detect implicit bias. But the only way we're gonna be able to pick these things up is to have that diverse team to actually see what these different things actually are. That's a really interesting point because it's one of the things we're hearing a lot about in terms of leadership, where we want to expand and diversify the types of people and ethnicities and genders we have in leadership circles. Again, for the large part, because a lot of being a leader right now, it's not just about your technical expertise. It's also about your ability to build and nurture relationships, to understand what motivates and drives people. And clearly having a homogenous leadership team limits your ability to understand what are the different needs, requirements, interests of your increasingly diverse workforce. So it's actually interesting here yet again, we're seeing that need for having diverse inputs of data to ensure the model we create that ends up becoming our AI has a better way of approaching and understanding and communicating the insights that we need in order to help our business grow. Oh, 100%. And I think we all know that companies that have that diversity in those different perspectives, right? It's, it's not just diversity of ethnicity, but diversity of thought perform better, right? They perform better financially. They seem to do better with employee product productivity and morale. You know, I know there's studies now going on about even customer satisfaction, but it's the same exact thing in AI. If we want to maximize the value out of it, we want to maximize the opportunity we need to have diverse teams helping to put together these AI solutions. So, Neil, so far we've been looking at the various concerns and challenges around AI. What I'd like to do now is pivot to what are the opportunities AI presents, particularly for leaders and how they guide and lead their organization. Of course, one thing we have to address first is that the real benefit we should be aspiring to attain with AI is not simply better efficiencies in terms of how we work now, but really a radical disruption to how we approach work. And perhaps if we frame it that way, that AI presents us with a tool to innovate and disrupt for collective gain, I think it becomes a conversation that more people would be interested in having. Of course, with any disruption, you're going to see a loss of certain jobs. But to quote one of my favorite sci-fi shows, 
all of this has happened before and all of it will happen again. And case in point, I don't think any of us are mourning the loss of lamplighter jobs, mainly because as a society, we found a way to help the people who did that work to pivot to new burgeoning industries where there's a growing demand for people and opportunities for personal growth. So in that context, Neil, what are some of the ways AI can and will not only disrupt the way we work, but actually improve things for the better? What are some of the ways the leaders can benefit from AI in terms of improving the way they lead? Great question, Tanvir, because there's actually lots of opportunity. And you kind of alluded to this, a lot of organizations struggle with it because we're used to thinking of computers as something that does something faster, cheaper, less errors, but now you have these new capabilities that actually allow them to do cognitive type of work. And one of the things we're actually finding right now is the legal industry, which is one of the slowest to ever change or adopt new things, um, they were kind of, yeah, yeah, nothing's really broken. What are we trying to fix? We're making plenty of money. Then about two years ago, there was a sudden wave where everyone's trying to dive into the AI pool because they realized that a few of the more innovative firms had already done it. And now they were racing to play catch up. So things like trying to improve, not just like legal operations with like case management and you know, research and all this kind of stuff, but you had people actually coming in and they were using AI to help with case strategy. There was actually an, an example of, and I kid you not, the guy was a dentist, bought a whole tooth at, or bought a whole chicken at Walmart, but in the gizzard chipped his tooth, sued Walmart for damages, right? Ordinarily, Walmart probably would have sent out of court. You know, I don't know how much for, I'm just guessing maybe $60,000, $80,000 just to be done with it. Well, they're using this AI solution by legal nation. And as the AI is going through and doing the, figuring out the deposition questions, all these things, it's also formulating a little bit of case strategy. And it actually noted that it's a material fact that when chickens eat, they eat stones, they get stored in the gizzard. So by this guy buying a whole chicken and actually trying to eat the gizzard, should have been aware of that fact. That's the argument that won Walmart the case, right? And you of course want to pay nothing, save a bunch of money that way. But I asked several managing partners of these big law firms, would any of your senior lawyers have figured that out? And they're like, not unless they were a chicken farmer. <laughs> yeah. so that's the opportunities that we can actually tap into. We're actually, I'm actually seeing people right now where they're tapping into the psychographic profiling capabilities and the neurolinguistic capabilities of AI. So basically things around personality, body language, word choice, to help see are people actually suffering during the pandemic? Do they have employees that may be feeling anxious or depressed? They may be developing mental health issues and can they do something about it? Can try encourage them to get more help or help build them build resiliency? And so you actually have a, you know some of these more innovative companies that they're turning the AI into leadership tools to develop more productive workers, to help align their career paths with something that's better suited for them, to improve even recruiting, to improve you know, morale, productivity, to even be just figure out how do I manage each person differently? You talk about precision leadership, right? Rather than trying to do things kind of in buckets, know that 
you know, employee number A, they care about X, Y, and Z. And so I need to focus with them this way and speak to them using these types of words and these type of focuses, because that's what resonates with them the most. So there's a lot being unpacked right now in terms of developing leadership skills and tools through AI. I love these examples, Neil. <laughs> it was a great one about the lawyers and being a chicken farmer. But I think this helps to crystallize what AI would look like in practice. In fact, considering the reality that many of us are now working remotely and how many organizations have now embraced the fact that at least some part of their workforce will, from this point forward, work remotely, I think this represents another opportunity for AI to help address some of the issues leaders are grappling with. For example, I'm sure you've noticed, Neil, how work conversations can start with an email, migrate to a Zoom meeting, lead to a text messaging chain before ending up on a Slack or Teams or so forth. And with the spread of information and ideas across these different channels, it really shouldn't be surprising to see certain details and even people being overlooked or left out of the discussion as things progress. In this case, I can imagine how AI could be used to process all the communication being shared between different team members and even different teams in order to discover opportunities where, for example, a solution to one team's problem could be provided by another team who encountered a similar issue and discussed it through their various communication channels, or even just ensuring those various threads and people don't get lost in the shuffles, people move from one conversation thread to another. You're 100% right, and uh, I wonder if you've been seeing some of the secret dossiers, Tanvir, because there's actually uh, five startup companies I know doing exactly that, and they're doing some pilots with some very big companies, because that's actually what those companies are worried about, that things are, are kind of falling through the cracks, and the right people are not always getting involved in either the work or even key decision-making. And to be honest, in my own experience, you know, working for a big company, sometimes you don't even know who those people are or who you should be asking. Right. Yeah. And this is one of the areas where AI could be a, an immense help. You know, we kind of call it the little concierge service as we're trying to perform our work. Who should we be engaging and who should we be informing? And, you know, having an AI that actually understands not the just the organizational structure, but the concept and nature of the work to be able to say, hey, we need to pull in so-and-so that's proven to be a powerful asset. Absolutely. I wasn't aware of this, so it's kind of great to see <laughs> efforts are being done. Like I said, it's probably things that some leaders listening to the show right now are probably going like, I hadn't thought of that, Tanvir. That's great. And I'm actually relieved to hear that there's companies out there who are actually trying to figure a way to how to address this. So, Neil, with this in mind, now, I think we're starting to show the benefits of AI so let's take it to the next stage, which is how can leaders start exploring bringing AI into their workplace? I mean, granted, each organization and workplace is different. Their needs are different. How they operate is different. But what are some common steps, especially for those who maybe only now, because of what we're sharing here, are thinking that, you know, this is actually something we should be looking into and start building a plan for? What would be their common steps they should be looking into taking, as well as common pitfalls they should be on the lookout for? Well, there, there's, there's a lot. I share some in my, my book, but I think let me call a couple of key ones out for everyone's benefit. So first and foremost, don't wait for your smart technical people to tell you what you can do. Um, I just hate to say it this way. They're, they're very smart, but I've not met many technologists that really understand the pain points of whatever domain you're working in. 
I mean, I haven't seen that many technologists to understand the problems a doctor faces, a lawyer, an accountant, a teacher. It's, it's not a knock on the technologists. It's just we had this robust set of tools. It starts with a problem, but it's not problem solution like we're used to. It's you know, what I call my magic formula. It's mindset, right? You got to open your mind, forget about what you know and what you think is possible. Put yourself in the entrepreneurial mindset and think about what's the real problem. What is it, what is it you really want to try and do or solve and what are the real root causes? So not the, the tangential stuff or the one or two things that immediately pop to mind, but the drivers behind it, right? And we bring the domain knowledge in to help identify that that actually creates our opportunity. Then we take the opportunity and we marry it with the technical expertise, right? Then we bring in a smart technologist and say, hey, look, here's my pie in the sky kind of idea, right? Is this even possible? And see if like if AI or other emerging technology can bring some capabilities to bear and you look at the infrastructure, right? Can I do this? Do I have enough data? Do I need 5G? Do I need, you know, quantum computers, well, you know, or can regular computers work? And then you figure out what's actually doable the art of the possible or the solution. But to do this, it starts with each one of us as leaders to think about essentially, how can I Uber myself before I get Kodak, right? How do I disrupt what I'm already doing, especially to you know solve a major problem? That's the hardest thing for, I think, people to do. This is where everyone tends to trip up because we, we don't teach people how to think this way. And I've been good at it because I've been doing that my entire life. Ironically, this is the, the topic of my next book is actually sharing my disruptive thinking framework. We kind of have to step out of our own shoes for a moment and say, if I had a total greenfield, how would I like to do this? Forget about what's, what's you know, what I think is possible. Just how would I like to do this and see if I can make that work. And the leaders that are actually doing that are the ones that are actually getting the most success. I, I can tell you that, you know, even the United Nations, the, one of the most bureaucratic red tape organizations out there, their heart's in the right place, but they moved at the speed of entrepreneurship to start up the whole AI for good initiative, right? They got 116 products going on. They're doing things they never would have thought possible five years ago, right? Like in turning villagers in a remote African village into like a physician's assistant through AI technology. You know, we, we heard about the Legal Nations Associate Lawyer, but we got a company like Cyrano AI that's created an AI communication coach so that you can, you know, speak the language of other people, meaning not foreign languages, but what they care about the most, what words are going to resonate, right? You think about like your significant other, the person you love the most in the world, you still have miscommunication. But here's a tool that can actually sift through some of that miscommunication and reduce it. So there's lots of things that can be done, but it all starts with us trying to figure out what's going to make the most sense. What is it that I want to do? This is one of the reasons why I'm glad to have you on my podcast, Neil, is I think our conversation is helping leaders with that first step of getting a better understanding of AI, of its capabilities and possibilities. Now, having said that, Neil, I do want to pivot back to the devil's advocate side of this issue. Now, with AI, I think we can appreciate now how it can help us in our leadership by improving our ability to develop strategies, 
by exposing patterns and trends we might not have seen or otherwise considered. It could help us better understand our employee motivations in terms of what matters to them and how we could be more effective in our communications. And it can even help us with those overlooked opportunities where we can offer something that will empower and engage our employees in the work they do. And it could even help us better understand our customers' changing needs and what we should put to the forefront of our offerings to ensure we not only retain customers, but gain some new ones as well. So all of this is basically demonstrating AI can make us more effective and more efficient and take some of those tasks that fill our work days right now. But the fact is, and here's where the devil's advocate part comes into play, is we were kind of promised this kind of a technological work transformation back in the 1970s with the advent of the PC, that thanks to the wide adoption of computers in the workplace, we'd see this liberation from dreary tasks and more time spent on creative efforts, as well as more personal time. And we all know how that turned out, where we're now working more hours than our parents and grandparents did. So... How do we avoid this from happening again, to rephrase uh, that quote from that sci-fi show of mine? If AI is to be this great disruptor to the way we work and what we work on, Neil, how do we ensure it also leads to that greater freedom and creative expression? Uh, that's a great question, Tanvir, because I 100% agree with you. It seems like with every technological innovation, we get more work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly believe that AI is going to make us more human. And, you know, a lot of people kind of do a double take. You're just, wait, you're saying a machine is going to help me be more human? Yeah, 100%. And we're always starting to see that. I think this is more than just taking away, like, the grunt work and the admin work that we're doing right now, right? It's But by actually being able to take some of that heavy lifting off our shoulders, it's allowing us to focus on work that AI is actually not good at which is more the creativity, the imagination, the, the first of a kind, you know, you're thinking about a whole new product or a whole new market, right? We don't know how to teach machines imagination. It's always going to be the realm of people. But this means then we have to think more about philosophy and the arts, right? We have to think about the scenarios, the thought exercises and the experience we want to create around things. But I think it's also going to, actually free up some time to allow us to actually do this, which means we have to be a little more in touch with ourselves. You know, we, we talk about what are the, what's the future of work and where are the jobs going to be? You know, there's going to be huge demand for actually life coaches, for yoga instructors, you know, all these things that are more about the, the, the opposite balance of human life. And a great example of this is there's actually a project going on in Nairobi, Kenya right now, called Loving AI. And it's probably not what people immediately think, but the biggest illness in the world is actually loneliness. About 40% of the people before the pandemic suffered from moderate to severe loneliness. And so they were trying to say, can we teach an AI unconditional love, right? Can we do that and create an outlet, whether it's a robot or a chat or you know, a virtual avatar? The people who feel lonely, they have someone that they can reach out to anytime to engage, feel like they, they belong to something, build their confidence, not a substitute for human relationships, but give them the confidence to, to you know, engage with people and try to overcome that loneliness. It's a very noble initiative. But the first thing they encountered was, okay, if we're going to teach AI unconditional love, what does that mean? How do you define unconditional love? 
And how is that different than regular love? And what are the different types of love? Like you have the love between two spouses and parent and child, among friends. And it turned into this really deep type of cathartic exercise exploring the depths of human nature. And I mean, they're having actually a wonderful time because they're trying to figure all this stuff out. But it's like they said, like it's like maybe more in touch about people. And actually, the, the relationships I form with other people. And that's why I actually think is that we're not just going to somehow manufacture a lot more work for us, you know, as AI takes some of this stuff off. I really believe we have an opportunity to shift our mindsets and actually focus more on these kind of human nature type of activities and things like that. You know, embrace our, our desire to explore, to learn, to imagine. Right, maybe some of that will be done for work. Maybe that will be done personal time. But I think this is what ultimately so many of us are actually hoping for—that we have the freedom of choice to do some of these things. I love that, Neil. I don't think I've ever seen in any discussion of AI this notion of it helping us to become more connected with our humanity, with what makes us human. And I think maybe part of the reason is because we're so focused on computers because we tend to look at them, obviously, as being completely rational. They're not driven by emotions, that their focus would be just on the negative aspects that make us human. And that this examples that you're sharing, that maybe what if we were to actually get them to focus on our better angels, on what's that collective goodness that exists in all of us, and then the impact that would have not only on the way we work, but on our society at large. So that's such a great message there, Neil, and such a hopeful idea for us to contemplate. I'm an optimist. I No surprise there, but I think that's the unique opportunity that we have. And I really hope that we, we embrace it. Likewise. Neil, this is one of the reasons I'm so glad that you came on my show. So you could share your insights and ideas that you share in your book on AI. I really appreciate your educating us not only on the realities of AI, but the hopeful possibilities it can create, not just internally, as I said, within organizations, but more at a societal level where we can envision this as being another opportunity for us to improve quality of life for everyone everywhere, much in the same way the smartphone and even the internet has helped open doors and possibilities for those who geographically and economically might have otherwise gone without. So thanks for this, Neil. Your optimism clearly shone through over the course of today's conversation. I'm really grateful for it. You know, my, my, my pleasure. And I, I love the word. It's the right word, Tanvir, you're saying. It's opportunity, right? And that, that's what we're going to take. If we think about the bad things, we're never going to tap into the potential. Never going to unlock that value. So if we come in saying, hey, there's an opportunity here, this is where the magic's going to happen. Perfect. What a great message to end on. Thanks a lot, Neil. Hey, my pleasure. Now, that's a wonderful way to end a conversation with a shift away from seeing some form of change as being a risk to seeing it as an opportunity for us to learn, grow, and improve the way we lead. Love it. And if you loved Neil's insights, and as he said himself, optimistic viewpoint on AI and would like to learn more about his work, check out the show notes for this episode, a link to which you can find on our podcast page at tampanasir.com slash lbc and that's a wrap for this episode of leadership biz cafe brought to you by tavid nasir leadership now if you enjoyed learning about this or other insights i've discussed here on my leadership podcast and you'd be interested in having me share them with your employees 
I'd like to invite you to fill out the contact form on our website at tavernasir.com so we can start that discussion. You can also check out my speaking page on our company website to learn more about my speaking services and the kinds of topics I cover. In the meantime, I'd like to encourage you to share this or other episodes of my podcast with your colleagues and employees. The easiest way to do this is to simply share a link to the show's podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review my leadership podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And with that, I'm Tavi Nasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.